Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's been a coach with Team Ontario, where he was the head coach at Canada Games and at the U.S. High Performance Championships. He's currently the head coach of the Waterloo Warriors, where he took the helm in 2014. He's got four straight playoff appearances in OUA Bronze, and he's been named OUA and U Sports Coach of the Year. Please welcome to the show, Richard Eddy. Richard, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate you taking an interest. So I think... I know you as the Waterloo coach, and I would label you as an Ontario guy, but uh, my understanding is you moved around a lot growing up, so I'm just interested to hear where is home and what was your relationship with sport that kind of made you pursue a career in coaching? Yeah, great question. So home today is definitely here in Waterloo with my wife and my son. Um, Calgary is where I had a lot of my um, adult years, and prior to that, I lived in Nova Scotia where I had a lot of my volleyball playing years. So um, in terms of my my getting to this point, I have lived all around the country. Nice. And I mean, you, you named a lot of good sports communities there that you had the chance to grow up in. So was volleyball always your passion or what other sports were you into when you were growing up? Yeah, I played everything. I love sports. I still do. Um, I love getting out there and being active and staying in shape. And when I first got interested in volleyball, it was at a I, there was a posting for a tryout in grade eight and I just wanted to be on every team. That was like sort of my goal in junior high was just to try to play on every team. And I, I remember going out just this tall kind of lanky guy that played basketball and I was a soccer goalie and did some other track and field things. And uh, from very early on, I had a great experience in volleyball, fell in love with the sport, had some great coaches. And uh, really, I never looked back. Once I started playing volleyball competitively, it really took over as my main sport. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always appreciated the lessons that I've gotten from playing volleyball. Nice, nice. Yeah, I always find it interesting that I, I think other sports like invasion games that kids can play, if somebody fumbles the object, they keep going. So I think it's fun for kids to play like soccer or hockey or basketball where volleyball your skills have to be good enough or the people around you have to be good enough so would you want just going back to your point earlier credit that to like you had some really good public school or, or junior high like teachers who could make the ball like go through the air a lot or did you like hit a ball and that's what got you clicked like what was the moment like just the level of play in your own school or was it just your own skills that really attracted you to volleyball my earliest memory of volleyball was um an up uh, an older athlete leading a warm-up where he asked us to dive. And at first I thought he was actually joking. I didn't realize that this sport actually was played in a way where you were re really quite intense and hitting the floor and problem solving and uh, touching the ball in all, all kinds of different ways. And for some reason that stands out in my memory as being like something really exciting about the sport, the defensive aspect of it that got me hooked early on. And from there, yes, I had an excellent junior high teacher, uh, Dave McKinnon, I believe was his name. And he taught the fundamentals really, fundamentals really well. He gave everyone an opportunity to play. And through that experience, I, I earned a role on the Nova Scotia provincial team and a club team. And I credit him to really um, teaching me the foundations early on that um, allowed me to go on and have success in the sport. And what was that jump like? Because going from school ball to either club or, or even in your case, the provincial team, it has to take a jump. But did you just get more and more excited the more like you climbed the level and you're around better players? 
yeah, each level it exposed me to, um, oh wow, there's a there are levels of this game that I really had no idea of, and that so my experience growing up um, as a competitive athlete already, but new to volleyball, I I always knew of the challenge in playing on the A team or playing on the next uh, the next age group up, but with volleyball it just got higher and more exciting every level that you went up, more intense, better athletes, and also smarter athletes. And that appealed to the other side of my personality, which is pretty analytical. And uh, I am a student of the game and the sports that I played. So um, volleyball just brought together so many different elements that attracted me to that, that quest for getting better and, um, and learning and just always being, you know, always trying to be a little bit better and climb that ladder a little bit higher. Nice. And just a quick sidetrack before we get back to your bio here, just as a high performance coach, what are your thoughts with what's happening out east? Because I think there's a ton of great people involved in the community, and especially in that volleyball Nova Scotia area where it seems like the game's growing. There's more and more high quality coaches. There's more kids playing. Like when you look at what you had growing up to what like uh, the Maritimes are doing now, like is it fair to say it's changed quite a bit? I think it's changed changed a ton, and I just have a surface level um, sort of observational understanding of it right now. But you can see that Nova Scotia in particular, uh, New Brunswick, they're producing strong players that are going and playing in, uh, you know, new sports college level. Their provincial teams are getting more and more competitive. They've, they've built high performance programs. I know that they've brought in outside coaches. I think you and I both know Chris Lawson pretty well. And I know Chris has been called to go and deliver coach training in Newfoundland and, and places like that. So there seems to be an investment in their development there. And I do have to say, it's a good good time to say that we have recruited an athlete from uh, the Nova Scotia provincial team for our coming year that we're pretty excited about. And so I think you're just seeing them get better and stronger and come a long, long way from the days uh, when I played uh, for Team Nova Scotia, which was uh, some great athletes and pretty competitive, but not not the best volleyball around. So I think they've really made some big gains. Nice. So to switch back to you, obviously you're climbing the ladder as a competitive athlete and you love sport. At what point did you want to enter coaching? Because I, I think it's funny, like myself and when Natasha was on the show, like we kind of joke about like if you would have asked us in the 10th grade what our career was going to be, we would have said coach because we didn't think it was a real job. Right. So uh, I'm curious, you wanted to stay around sport. You're really passionate. Was coaching a goal for you or when did it start to click that this could be your, your lifestyle you're living? It's you know, the only exciting part about that about this story is I really never thought intentionally about becoming a coach, especially not at this level. It just sort of fell together. Um, when I moved to Waterloo, I was just looking for a way to meet friends, and I had always made friends through sport. I was looking for a men's league to play in, and I came across a posting for a, a job uh, coaching a local club team, and I thought, you know, Oh, I could, I could probably coach. I know a lot about volleyball, not realizing at that point, there's so much more to coaching than just having played a sport. And there was something about the ability to impact athletes, tie into some of the skills I built through my career and leadership and managing a program. It just, it grabbed me early on and I got really passionate about it. And then I used that passion similar to as a player, just that quest for knowledge I think I developed a quest for knowledge in, uh, in coaching and, you know, I, I have to say, I'm still, I'm still on that quest. I certainly don't think I've fully arrived in that regard, but, 
that quest for knowledge, that opportunity to get better every day and to impact people's lives was really something that just grabbed me and and still to this day is something I um, that keeps me really engaged in in this career. And was KW Preds your, your first stop at Coaching Club Volleyball here in Ontario? Uh, my first stop was actually the uh, Cambridge Scorpions. And that was where the opportunity came. And then the opportunity to get a little bit more um, competitive and work with Paul Pavin uh, at, at the Preds. Um, that, that was sort of my door into a, a little more of a competitive approach to, to, to the club scene. And then uh, from there, got involved as an assistant under Luke Snyder um, at the University of Waterloo. And Luke, as Luke stepped in to coach the team in a transition year. And uh, from there, um, you know, you know the rest. I, I became the head coach, and and here I am. Awesome, yeah. I think Paul Langan with Scorpions does a great job. They get a ton of kids playing volleyball, all at different levels. Like uh, even outside the OVA, like just the house league and the beach programs they run, and and what Pavin and, and his family have done with the Preds is really impressive. Uh, quick question about the Predators: Like uh, at Ontario Championships this year, they had a team in the 18U final for both genders. And when I reached out to friend of the show Becky Pavin, I was kind of like, "What's what's going on here, Becky? What's the deal here?" And she mentioned like her dad really strives to they they take the term club very seriously. We're top to bottom. They want athletes to mentor other athletes they want coaches to be connected where it's not like oh you coach the 17s and here's your gym time and you never see anybody else like going back to when you coach at the preds is it fair to say that pavin was kind of building that uh foundation where like you guys are going to be a part of something bigger it was going to be a club and you weren't going to be isolated in your own bubble you were going to meet every other team basically yeah I, unfortunately i really only had one year with the club but since during that time and since them that since then i've had all kinds of experience, um, both working with and um, getting to know some coaches from that club. And I can say that there is a vibe of um, wanting to be competitive, wanting to be a great club, wanting to put together good teams. There are There is a highly invested executive there. And um, obviously, you know, you can't, you can't deny uh, Paul's influence on, on the club and all the teams. And I think there's something about the Preds team that carries uh, and attracts that competitive element. And, um, you know, I, I think it was awesome to see two of two really strong coaches with great teams, get their teams to, uh, to the 18 U final and, um, and almost certainly going to have success at the upcoming nationals. And, it was pretty young in your coaching career, but to work with a guy like Luke Snyder, who's been the head of a program before who had a very good playing career, did that kind of spark any anything in you in terms of like your data-driven mind or analytical mind? Because there's a guy who could play the game at a physical level, but I think also thinks the game extremely well. So I'm curious, what were the conversations you guys were having in coaches meetings or on bus trips? Like, did that really spark anything that you wanted to, to kind of deliver in your own coaching career? Yeah, I think what, what Luke, first of all, I have a ton of respect for Luke and he's a great guy and, and is a really positive influence on my coaching development. Um, where I probably struggled as a coach early on was, uh, sort of like a ready fire aim approach to coaching or feedback or, or, um, problem solving. Whereas Luke would think a little bit more carefully about what he was doing and the feedback he was providing. He was very clear and organized on how he would introduce concepts into training both in a practice and over the course of the year. And um, I would say that was my best example to date of 
a really thoughtful approach to laying out a seasonal plan and a, and a progression of training. And, and that influence um, impacted my career in a positive way and then really got me interested in thinking about that a lot more. Uh, to this day, I would say is one of my strengths as a coach is, is, is thinking in terms of uh, skill, pro- skill progression and, and yearly planning. Nice, nice. Yeah, I can't wait to dive down that rabbit hole just in a second. So uh, to kind of wrap up how you got the first chair, what was your mood when you saw the job posting? Like, did you feel you were ready to apply and get an interview? Like, uh, obviously, you were already working at Waterloo. So maybe you heard rumblings that they were going to try to hire a a full time head coach. But what was just kind of your response when you saw the opportunity was there? Yeah, I think a theme in my life is I've never been scared to go after something I wanted, even if I wasn't maybe quite ready to do it. So I, I was, I, I had the passion, I had the, the desire to put the work in, and I had a little bit of experience, and I just went for it. Um, at the time, I don't know that it was the most sought after job. I think that, um, you know, the, the reputation of the program and maybe what it was offering to the potential coach at that time wasn't, um, you know, wasn't the most appealing. So I was coming into a situation where I recognized that the chances of success were low. It needed a lot of work to establish a new culture and a new uh, sort of foundation for the program. And I, I think I just sold myself on my ability to put in the work and I had had developed some relationships with people that believed in, in me. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity because it, it really has worked out and, uh, you know, still room to go, but, uh, we've, we've made a lot of progress so far. And I know it was, uh, 2014 when you did start, but if you had to dig through some binders or notes or just your own memory, where did you approach the culture first? Like if that was the thing that you were going to kind of drive and that was the thing you wanted to get right off the hop, like how was it uh, connected to like that first preseason or that first meeting with the returning athletes? Like what was kind of your goal of what you wanted it to look like and feel like? Yeah. In my mind, I knew I, I didn't have the experience to be the best coach out there. I didn't think that I would come in and out coach the great coaches that we have in our league. I do know that if in anything you either um, you're either the best or if you're not the best, you better be known as the hardest working. And so we set out to establish a work ethic. And um, that was both in the classroom and on the court, a work ethic that maybe couldn't be matched, or at least we perceived that we were working hard enough to uh, create an advantage for ourselves. And um, I think you go on to learn that hard work has to be paired with smart work. And so over time, the work ethic evolved into a more, call it scientific approach. But at the very beginning, I sought to set a higher expectation for um, for our work ethic and um, try to attract players to the program initially that maybe didn't, maybe weren't recruited at the same, because of their accolades, the, uh, the same way they, you know, might be uh, perceived as from other programs, but um, we brought in people that we thought had a lot of character and had the work ethic and the desire to be varsity athletes. And I still, to this day, credit some of those early sort of walk on um, late recruit type athletes that we got for helping change the culture of the program and bringing their leadership and desire to 
get better. And that ultimately was the start of, of what we're doing today. Amazing. Yeah. As you're saying this, I know it's revisionist history at this point, but just the work ethic there must be really appealing to a lot of the athletes you're speaking to. Because any of our listeners who don't, who aren't familiar with the University of Waterloo, a very academic school, very math and science strong. So the, the type of students you're appealing to, like a friend of the show, Alex Poldma, like he's a, a full-time engineering student there and trying to find time to be a varsity athlete, like was pretty daunting. So uh, I am curious though, you mentioned you were a seasonal plan guy just a, a couple uh, sentences ago there. Is that something you really have to consider is when are midterms, when are exams, like when are the heavy times? Because if you've got athletes who are in maybe 40 hours of class a week or a little bit higher by the time you add in like labs and homework, how are you making sure that they're when they're in the gym, like they're, they're playing free and their mind's not on what else they need to accomplish that day? A hundred percent. So we have every, every element of my seasonal planning involves um, an understanding of the academics schedule, both kind of high level and, and down to an athlete's individual um, grade stress or uh, grade profile when they have grades due, when their busy weeks are, when their down weeks are. And really, as most things I'll say, um, when you get right into the recruiting process, we have to make sure that we can find student athletes that are comfortable prioritizing volleyball and academics as as number one and two or one and one and one. And um, people that understand they are coming to an academic institution that is going to demand a lot out of them. And uh, we have to be pretty thoughtful in how we manage our training, our volume, and um, our, our kind of yearly calendar to make sure that we can have success in both of those, uh, in both academics and on the court. Nice. And was there ever any confirmation point for you, whether it was the bronze medal or some of the records or the coach of year award that like you guys belong? Because you mentioned there's a ton of great coaches there, but for you guys to compete in the West against, you know, the, the Max, the Westerns, Windsor's had a few good runs, like Guelph is always seems to be competitive. Like it seems like uh, there, there's a ton of good schools in your division every single year. So what, was there any confirmation, maybe the first time you guys made the playoffs or the first time you get some hardware on the podium? Like when you look back at what you've achieved, is there any moment that stands out that like, yeah, we're, we're building something pretty special here? That's a tough question to answer because I do look back at the first time we made the playoffs as a, a small uh, milestone, a small achievement. I can tell you that one of the comments I received even after our first season where we only won five games was that was five more than people thought we would win. So um, that was, you know, that was uh, a, a very small victory along the way was just realizing, hey, can I win one game in this league to winning five games to finding a way to put together a playoff season and then building from there. I would say I don't reflect on some of those accomplishments too much um, because from a very early time in my coaching career, I guess I, I looked at winning or competing for the OUA title as kind of the sign that you had arrived. You're, if you're, if you're consistently able to compete with the best teams or at least, um, in that conversation. And so I think we've made a lot of gain towards that. We have not won the banner yet. I think when I win the banner and if I win the banner, if, if, if our team is able to get there, then I'll look at that as maybe um, mission accomplished for that year. But ideally it is more than that there. You know, I have to say 
we have we have exceptional student athletes at Waterloo. Right now, we're carrying an 86% academic average. We've been in the playoffs for five years in a row. We've reached the national rankings three three seasons in a row. Um, so those are those are accomplishments that tells me our program is uh, competitive and probably desirable to be at. Um, but I guess just from the pure volleyball competition side, uh, winning the OUA banner, I think, would be the measure of success. And, um, you know, that's that's what I have my sights set on competitively. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. I, I'm, it's exciting to see how the program continues to just kind of excel and, and kind of build on this culture. And I'm kind of curious as, as a big sports fan, like one thing that I find appealing about coaching in general is when you can um, attach your culture to the drill design and the practices where a lot of coaches will say like don't just put a quote on the wall don't put a cool saying on your t-shirts like you need to live it and you need to boil it down to the day-to-day stuff so have you kind of hacked the code a little bit that you 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 make this culture or you want your athletes to be hardworking that you can actually like see it when they warm up or you can see it in the drill design like you can see it in the physical action of our sport? Like, have you found any ways to attach like your, your mantra to actual physical athletic skill? Well, that's a great question. I think you have to foster leadership within the team. I mean, I ultimately the buck stops with the coach, but I find it, if you're trying to set the temperature in the gym to be intense and have intense training and people that are bought in, I really think the most influ the most influence comes from within the team if you've got great leaders, if you've got people that, um, you know, bring the competition to practice every night. And as a coach, if you're creating good practices where that can really showcase itself, um, then you've got the ingredients for, for, for success. I think, I think at Waterloo, it is a, as, as we've talked about a hard, um, competitive atmosphere academically, we, like to train competitively. We like to have fun. We like practice to be um, an outlet, something you look forward to coming to every day, both for myself, the coaches and the players. And so I think we've done a pretty good job having our environment match uh, the the personality of the school and the players that we have on our team. Um, but also, as I said, like having good leadership from within the team that is that is keeping the temperature high in the gym um, is a, is a key factor that I look for in recruiting. And I also try to develop, um, with the players that we have. Now, I hope it's not too behind the curtain and you don't mind sharing, but I'm curious if you could give actual examples of how you manage to load, whether, uh, like, do you guys give more off days than other programs do? Do you do small sessions when athletes have time on their schedule? Uh, do you just shorten practice time where maybe you're not married to the idea that we need to get two hours of work in? Like, what are some ways you found to keep them energized and still make it worth it when you're in the gym without making them like dread that their whole day is built around that, that practice session? Yeah, good question. Uh, some of the, some of the things that we do, we definitely manage the duration of practice. Um, sometimes it, well, let's just say we have a two hour time block. It doesn't mean we're going to practice for two hours every time. I, I have no problem with doing a short focus practice occasionally we'll do a longer practice like a two and a half hour practice uh, early in the week on a let's say a down week or a less busy week i have no problem giving the odd night off um a tired athlete doesn't learn or perform well anyway so you have to be managing your rest and recovery pretty carefully 
we work closely with our strength and conditioning coach to make sure we're not overloading them too much in the weight room or too much on the court. Um, so just from like a, a duration of practice, like, no, we don't come into the gym and go for two hours every single night. We're pretty thoughtful about how we layer those longer or shorter practices in. Another measure I use, which, which I think is um, actually something I would recommend, quite simple to coaches that are maybe new or trying to simplify load management a little bit. And that is, I like, I like to use sort of relative intensity as, as uh, an indicator when I'm planning. So if we say uh, jumps or arm swings are sort of like the maximum force movements in our sport, then I like to know for each drill I plan and for each session and week I plan what the relative intensity is of our training. So how many jumps per minute today or in this drill? And if you, uh, you know, really it only takes a few practices to monitor your favorite drills to find out how often your athletes are actually jumping or swinging hard in each of the drills that you design to come up with, um, a rating for each of those drills. And then as you're building out your plan or as you're building out your, your practice, being thoughtful about what kind of load you are, you're putting on the athletes, what's their relative training intensity. And once you understand, and once they understand how they respond to that intensity, you can get pretty perceptive on what practices are going to make them tired. What practices can be a little longer, a little shorter and how much rest, um, between practices or, or, or before you do that again, that they're going to need in order to be, uh, I guess, maximizing their improvement and minimizing the risk of injury. Those are kind of the two um, benchmarks, I guess, that you want to keep in mind as you're, as you're planning. So relative intensity is something that I find is a really simple way to manage load um, both over a, a day, a week, or, or extended period of time. Yeah, that's, that's awesome stuff. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious, is it fair to say that progresses throughout the season where maybe 80 jumps the, the first week back would be like a, a medium intensity where 80 jumps leading into the playoffs? That's, that's nothing on some of these athletes. Like where does their own capacity building and tolerance kind of affected? Or is it fair to say like when you've identified like this is a heavy drill, is it a heavy drill in the fall as much as it is in the, in the winter playoff prep? Yeah, good question. So I think I think you have to assess each athlete individually, but just as a general statement, um, we want to build up our structural tolerance is a, a term I've heard used kind of along the way. So building up your, your body's capacity to train at an intense level first. And then once that's established, um, you could even think linearly about this, like progressively increasing the overall uh, relative intensity of your training as time goes on, but also understanding like put that 80 jumps into context. Are you going to jump 80 times over the course of two hours? Or are you going to come in and jump 80 times in 30 minutes, right? That could change kind of the intensity of, of your practice. So being thoughtful about the, the length of your, your training and how often you're jumping or swinging is, um, is all part of that performance planning. Awesome. Awesome stuff. And I'm curious because you are working with some fairly academically gifted athletes. What is your approach in the learning development and your drill design? Like there's a lot of theory out there about athlete autonomy. There's a lot of theory about like a constraints led approach versus 
like we're not going to play for the sake of playing, but we are going to do some game specific stuff where certain situations are going to occur. Like, is there anything you find appealing as a coach or that you find works well with the, the level of athlete you're working with? You know, there's so many different ways to do it. So whatever I say shouldn't be taken as gospel. I don't <laughs> think everyone needs to think the same way as I do. Um, but I, and this is all, as you're probably, you're probably on the same journey as me. It's always evolving, right? You're always like discovering your new best way of doing things. I do like to give the athletes a lot of autonomy. And I think one of the best ways to provide feedback is to, to design a drill where the, the drill actually provides the feedback more so than your voice or, or um, you know, something your assistant coach is whispering into their ear as they go. So if I can limit the distractions, if I can limit the things that my athletes are thinking about and focus on, let's say, one primary element or primary action that I want them to complete and the outcome or the constraint that I have on them, then I think that is show that in my experience that's been the best way to develop skill is is to identify hey look you're going to pass the ball you you have to be able to do this one thing and you need to be able to hit that target over there and if and if you can discover um the rest of it on your own and use your own physicality your own physical abilities to solve some of these problems then um you're probably going to come to a better solution than me prescribing the 17 different technical keys that you need uh, to have to be the perfect textbook passer. What I'd prefer to do is know what those 17 keys are. And if an athlete is struggling in the discovery to give them some clues or to give them some assistance uh, to increase their rate of success. But I don't like to prescribe or over-prescribe technical elements. I like to look at it more holistically in skill development as hey, here's the primary action, here's the outcome, or here's where you need to steer the ball to and um, you know, and set up a drill that provides that feedback for them. This is, yeah, this is great stuff. I'm curious if you're having the same struggle I am where, where the role of feedback comes in, because I, I agree the drill should provide the feedback. There's a ton of data that says like if they can learn it intrinsically, it's going to stick longer, it's going to perform better. They figured out the, the, the solve to the puzzle, but uh, some athletes have grown up in an era, whether it was a school coach or a club coach, that they have kind of a joystick coach who's going to tell them where to go, what to do, and that would be a little bit more, I almost use the term like rah-rah. So you have athletes coming from that environment where when they get to this level of coaching, they almost like accuse us of being like a spectator, right, or, or disinterested. So I'm curious, have you found the balance of like showing them you're engaged and coaching them up without like taking control of the wheel and driving their development and still letting them lead it? Like where's where's the balance for you in this this kind of coaching theory? I think for me, I, it's probably also important to mention that one of the things that we also provide to help them is video feedback. So we like to take the iPads out and record a lot of reps and um, give them the opportunity to see themselves performing the skill. And that's a big, uh, my assistant coaches are awesome at um, engaging with the athletes that way. But I don't think as a coach, you need to hear your voice, but I do think you need to speak up when there's some value to that. So maybe that's the art of it is figuring out when do they need to hear my voice and, and when do they not? Um, you know, and some of that can be accomplished off the court in a one-on-one -on -one meeting or a, a positional meeting. And some of that maybe is a, an athlete who's working their way through a drill and has, a, you know, they're maybe they're waiting their turn or, or your drill provides for the opportunity to see some video and get some feedback. But 
you know, I'm not, I'm not always sure that the coach needs their voice involved to help the athletes improve. In fact, sometimes it might even get in the way. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really erring on the say a little bit less side of things these days. And because you are so passionate about seasonal planning and obviously you've, you've had cycles of teams go out since you've been a part of the Warriors since uh, 14 there. Uh, I'm curious, the athlete wants to get it done and they want to learn it today. And sometimes as coaches, we want them to get better every single day. But have you found a, a way to say that like, I'm going to give this skill six, eight, maybe 10 weeks for them to develop until they can do it like on demand every single time. Like, have you found the balance or the science of like, this is going to take a while to learn and, and yeah, challenge yourself. I don't want you to be happy you're making errors, but where's kind of the challenge point in your gym where you're going to be realistic and say, Hey, you're a first year and I'm okay if this takes you eight weeks to qu- acquire this skill. Yeah. I, th- I think you're, you and I probably think similarly about this is we, we can easily get wrapped up in the same mindset as the athletes where we get impatient and you, you want to rush into gameplay and, because that's really fun and exciting. But I think you have to probably spend some time in certain areas and every team's different, but really just repping out certain skills or certain uh, sequences in the game that A, are foundational to the success of your system and B, are um, necessities in building a team that's going to have success at the level that you're at. Secondly, how do you know when it's time to move on? Well, I like to record every practice that I do and I'll actually go back and I'll just take some some stats that will give me an indicator of success on whatever it is that we're doing. And if we're kind of at, you know, three out of 10, it's probably not a good time to move on and, and layer in something more advanced. If we're at seven out of 10, eight out of 10, eight out of 10 in a successful execution of whatever it is we're training, then you know, it's probably the green light to, okay, go ahead and, and uh, let's, let's level up here. Let's make this a little more challenging or add another dynamic to whatever it is we're training. And have you found a way to almost like monitor your own expectations for the regular season where don't get me wrong, you got a match Friday night and you want to win and it matters in the standings. But if you're building a system and in your seasonal plan, like you're trying to peak around the quarterfinal or when the final four is, like, do you have more patience then in a first semester Friday night game? Like, how do you balance that? Because you're, you're such a competitor, the athletes want to win and it is important, but how do you kind of have a little bit of patience about like, we're not trying to be the best in October, we're trying to be the best in March? Yeah, that's um, that's been part of my coaching journey, to be quite honest, is balancing uh, what was an extremely competitive player's mindset into now the coach's mindset, which has to be quite a bit more patient. And you have to develop the different pieces on your team. Maybe, you know, maybe at um, maybe increasing your probability of losing early in the season. But I guess the challenge is really how do I demonstrate patience, find opportunities to develop um, along the way while still being competitive with the intention of ultimately peaking or winning in the quarterfinals, the semifinals, whatever it may be. I think. There's, um, you know, I think that is, that is a challenge to think about as a coach, because, you know, you don't want to go 17 and two and lose in the semifinal, right? You, you'd probably rather go 13 and six and play in the final, right? So how important is it? Like you, I think everyone's got to assess that for themselves. You have to look at your team, where your players are kind of in their 
what year they're in, what, where they are in their overall development. And, uh, you know, you got to figure out how to use your pieces and use your planning to, to get, get uh, your best performances when it matters the most. But you have to be in those games. So you have to figure out where you're going to win along the way too. And would you have a similar approach if you were coaching either a high school team or a club team where maybe some of our listeners are rolling their eyes being like, I don't get my athletes for four or five years and I don't have all these months to plan. Like, would you still have a, a, a seasonal plan approach and, and kind of thinking long term and when you want to peak if your season was maybe as short as a high school season or maybe what your approach was with Team Ontario where you get them for a summer before the major games? Yeah, two different, what I've learned is those are two different beasts. So coaching a tournament style team, which is like your team O, um, you know, maybe national team, Canada games, like that's a tournament team. You got a short period of time to prepare and then you have to go and win a tournament. Whereas um, a season-based team where you will probably have some kind of preparation period or, or at least you're building up to a major competition with some less important competitions along the way, that's that's a little different. I th- I think if I were to go back and coach club, um, I probably wouldn't care too much about winning at all until I got into kind of like the need to qualify in the top 16, let's say to be in the top tier or top division for provincials. But, you know, if you start training with your club team in September and you have two OVA tournaments, let's say before January, like how important is it to win like the McGregor cup, you know, like, you can take your time developing your team, developing your skills and systems. And um, I think in that approach, you'll be able to win more at the end if you take a slow ramp up approach versus rushing to get your team ready for a, the first competition and then trying to sustain that for a, quite a long season. Like OVA coaches have um, a lot of time to work with. And uh, I think you can make a lot of gains with the athletes over that period of time if you have a, if you have a plan and you don't prioritize winning too early in that plan and one question i had in my notes here because i really wanted to pick your brain mostly for selfish reasons here but i'm curious in the game planning model so you're a coach who values learning development and autonomy but when it comes to game planning because you're such a detail-oriented coach how do you resist the urge to say slap the binder on the table and say this is what we're doing i've watched so much video on this team this is what we're doing versus trying to get the athlete to own it or at least understand because they're the ones who are going to go out and execute it, right? So how have you found the balance of giving them the choice or or the ownership of what's about to happen versus like you're doing your due diligence, you're doing all the prep, you kind of know the the hack against this team. Like where is kind of the tug of war in your gym as far as working with the athletes and your level of prep? Oh, yeah, that's such a good challenge as a coach. Um, With my particular athletes, one of the challenges – at what, with a Waterloo-minded athlete is trying to not make the game a test. You can't um, prepare for every single possibility that might occur in the game. And we have excellent test takers on my team. And so I think you actually have to take a little bit of approach of understanding your opponent really well, um, and especially as a coach. And you don't have to always share this with your athletes, but knowing what they're capable of, knowing things that they may do, but building early on into your training the solution to some of the problems that you might encounter in the game. You also need to, uh, you also need to be adaptable. In our league, tactics change frequently. Teams call a timeout. You know they're going to come back with something different or pick on something on, you know, and expose something that's going on on your side of the net. So you really can't come in, I don't think, with 
hey, we're just going to do this and we're going to write it out for five sets. Like you need to come in with, we're going to start with this then we're going to try to open up this and then we're, um, you know, we're going to put pressure on here and if they switch then we'll put pressure on there. But I think taking an approach to game planning that more emphasizes how you're going to score, how are you going to earn points against your team with your serving and your attacking while slowing down and um, limiting the probability of success in some of the areas that your opponent is strong at. That's been kind of the best approach for us at Waterloo versus over prescribing uh, or, or giving them, like you said, that binder of info on everything that there is to know about the opponent. Yeah, like I, I try to go do the approach that we want to front load it. We want to give them exposure to all the situations before they happen. So when it does, they are comfortable. But like you said, tactics are always changing. And maybe you didn't think Kelsey Veltman was going to play left side that game. And all of a sudden, Melissa Bartlett writes her in there and you got to make adjustments, right? So uh, is there anything you do in a, in a timeout to connect to your culture or to make them flexible where something's happening that is unexpected and you guys can recover right away? Or, or maybe someone takes the lead on that? Like, is there any way to prepare for those moments that like... If you weren't prepared, maybe your team starts to panic a little bit. Yeah, prepare better. <laughs> uh, good question. I think um, I could give you an example. This year we played Brock uh, at at home. The first, we played them three times. But the first time we played them at home, we got we got destroyed by their middle Grace Pyatt. She had like nineteen kills on us, and they were setting the ball quite high. She jumped really well. Um, they set it tighter than we had sort of seen and she was playing higher than we had anticipated. And so they beat us, I think, largely by doing something that, um, was unique and we hadn't really experienced in the season or in our training to that point. So we had to take that L and go back and say, okay, like here's a scenario we hadn't really encountered or anticipated. And we actually did a better job managing that attack in the next two, two games we played them. So if a coach or a team presents us with something that is unique or special and we weren't particularly able to stop it, I, I still think you can win the game, um, but maybe you just have to take those lessons as they come and, and, and incorporate prep, that preparation into your, into your planning you know, next season or, or in, in your following training. I. I think you also need to be very clear on what your strengths are and how you're going to impose yourself on the opponent, because ultimately um, what we're trying to do is earn about 17, 18 points a set. And so a lot of that falls on how we're serving, how we're attacking and, and how we're touching balls at the net. So um, I, I don't like to over emphasize what my opponent is doing. I like to prepare for the most common and highly probable attack options and serve options that come at us in our league in general and incorporate that into my training early on. Um, and if something particularly special occurs then we we're, you know, we got to do our best to adapt. But I think your question was about timeouts. And, and to that point, I really try to emphasize a forward looking point scoring approach to any conversation that happens in the timeout. I think once it goes up to an emotional conversation you're probably um, not helping the athletes if you can maintain a tactical conversation uh, or a forward-looking piece of feedback like hey we're in this rotation we can probably score here this is open you know things like that then you're helping then you're helping your team so i try not to call timeouts where uh 
They're just purely emotional based. Awesome. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for sharing all that you have. And uh, I am curious. I, I think you guys did a good job, the the Zoom era and recruiting athletes. And, and I really feel for the athletes who had to stop and start. But for a coach, I know it's a lot of hours and it's a lot of work, but is it just so freeing to go to an Ontario Championships to recruit athletes or you're getting ready to go to youth nationals? Like, is it, I know it, like the hours add up and you're going to be away from your family a little bit, but is it just nice to be in the gym again, talking to coaches, talking to athletes versus that, that Zoom era that you had to go through for a couple of years? <laughs> I don't know. I might be the only person that kind of likes the Zoom era. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I enjoy having conversation with conversations with athletes and their parents and uh, talking about our program and our philosophies and, you know, ultimately, we're trying to find people that feel like Waterloo is where they can have success and, and that we're the right group for them to surround themselves with uh, to achieve their goals, whether that's in volleyball or um, their careers or, or further education. So, yeah, you know, I am looking forward to seeing people in person again and seeing my colleagues and, and coaching friends. Um, but we made out okay in the zoom era. So I, I can't, I can't uh, say too many bad things about it. Well, man, I've taken enough of your time and I know it is peak recruiting season, but one tradition we've built into the show is just to tell a funny or unique story. So uh, we didn't touch too much on your playing career, but we definitely took a dive in your coaching career where uh, I'm willing to bet that something funny or odd has happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share one more story before we let you go. Yeah, I think the, the funniest thing or the oddest thing that I've done through volleyball and probably only because volleyball was at the, when I was at the Canada games as a player in 1997 in Brandon, Manitoba, I was 16 years old and uh, my team had the brilliant idea that we were all going to get matching tattoos. <laughs> and so uh, as, as not a tattoo guy at all. And, and uh, you know, here I am 25 years later with a tattoo on my ankle I just look back. I remember thinking I was so cool for a couple of years. And then, uh, you know, as you get a little older, you're like, man, what a dork. <laughs> so I actually have started the process of getting this thing removed. Um, but uh, probably like, you know, the craziest thing I, I have done as part of volleyball was get a, a team tattoo, um, you know, celebrating the accomplishment of being at the Canada Games. Well, that really one-ups like the the dying of the hair or shaving their heads or doing stuff that I've seen other teams do the tattoo. That's, that's for real. That's for keeps. That's wow. You guys went all in on that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know whose idea it was, but I'm sure there, <laughs> I'm sure uh, it was not well received by a lot of parents after that experience. percent. <laughs> well, man, it was good to ta uh, talk with you. Sorry. I had to start a podcast for you and I to chat again, but uh, this was really good. I want to thank you for sharing all that you did and we'll have to get you back on as you keep adding more and more layers to your program. But Congratulations with everything you've achieved with the Waterloo Warriors, and I'm excited to see what you can continue to build there. Yeah, thanks so much, Josh. Josh, I appreciate you taking an interest and happy to chat volleyball anytime.